on with this study. Um, I said to the church some months ago that it, uh, it dawned on me, and I guess I should say somewhat forcefully, that I've been traveling around the country and teaching apostolic doctrine, and it's been years since I've just taken the time to teach it here. And I felt so strongly that we should take some weeks. And we, uh, we had been going through the book of Mark. We're going to go back and do that at some point when I feel like the Lord is finished with what we're doing right now. But I do believe that in this hour in which we find ourselves, there is nothing more important to us than making sure of our foundation. Amen. And it is so vitally important. And the unfortunate thing that I'm finding in so many places, uh, even in apostolic churches, we have gotten away from our basic doctrine. And we are raising generations of young people who really don't know why we believe what we believe. And that's got to change. It's got to change. And uh, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, but I do feel like God has laid it on my heart these last few years to make it, uh, uh, to accept, I guess I should say, the responsibility of making sure that those uh, I have the opportunity to preach to um, get a hold of something uh, that will help them with this message. Praise God. Amen. I, uh, for those that were here on Tuesday night, I relayed a story. A friend of mine called me Tuesday and told me he was working on a message and when he told me the title, I kind of, uh, I knew, I know him well enough that I knew there was something behind it because um, I know how firmly he believes this message. But uh, he said, I'm, I'm working on a message that I'm entitling how a, how a Trinitarian woman saved my church. And uh, he talked about how one of the ladies in his church I had been there, had been around the church for years, but she just never really got a hold of this message until somebody on the job confronted her, and she didn't have any answers. And she realized she could not respond to the question she was being asked and didn't know how to deal with it. And uh, so something about that stirred her up to get her Bible down and start studying until she had a firm grasp of the subject and as she got to studying it she started challenging other people in the church uh, finding out how well or how little they knew it and uh, before long there were many many people in that church that were searching the scriptures and studying our doctrine and he said it just turned everything around so he said I'm thankful to that Trinitarian woman for putting this lady on the spot and uh, uh, getting her stirred up where I have not been able to do that. 
But I said in response, I don't want it to take somebody in false doctrine to get this church stirred up. Well, hallelujah. Amen. I, I want each of you to feel confident that you know it well enough. And, uh, you know, I've taught it and taught it through the years, but I'm still finding uh, somehow folks slip through the cracks. They just slip through the cracks. And uh, I want to try to stop those gaps and make sure everybody knows this message. And so the last couple of weeks we have been dealing specifically with the doctrine of baptism. And we're going to go back and look at that again. Now, I had really hoped that uh, all of these lessons could be made available online and then found out our computer is having major issues and it looks like there's another investment we got to make and the recording didn't work last week at all and last week was one of the most important in our lessons and uh, we have no recording of it. Our backup system was our live stream which also uh, makes a recording of everything that we stream and that too was down and uh, so here we are uh, so I hope you got it because we can't go back and replay it for you but I will try and I've been promising and brother Thompson has been reminding me uh, I told you I would try to just get you a complete set of my notes once I finish this lesson and that I would try to get you a complete set of the notes of the Godhead as well. Um, and, uh, but he reminds me right before church each day, and I don't have time to do it, and I don't think about it again. So one of these days, I'll have to remind him to remind me when I'm not sitting at my desk getting ready for a service. Uh, but anyhow, we will try to get these to you. If I have to, I'll just give them to you in outline form and, and let you have just the outline and you can take it from there. Um, one of these days, Lord willing, one of these days, I'll have my book done and uh, you'll have copies of that and you'll have all of this information. But this is another reason why I said I felt compelled to go back and teach it because even as I teach it, there are things that I see that I need to include, and there are things that as I teach that come to me that I hadn't considered before. 4.30 this morning, I woke up and thought, you know, here's some scriptures I really need to put in there. And, uh, and so I've been working even today on what is familiar, but I'm telling you, there is so much to this that uh, we don't ever know it all. We don't ever know it all. And uh, no matter how many times we've heard it, there's always something else we can glean if we keep our hearts and our minds open. Praise God. Hebrews chapter 6 has been our text. We're going to use it again today. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 3. The apostles said, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ... And again, I point out to you, it is the doctrine of Christ. Those who say we don't need doctrine today are denying something that Christ imparted to us. And I say that's a dangerous way to live. 
Uh, this is the doctrine of Christ. He said, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation. And so he is about to identify for us what the foundation of the true church of the living God is really made up of. This is the foundation. And I said before, and I say again, any church that is not built on this foundation is not a part of the true church. That's not being judgmental. That's telling you what the Bible says. The Bible says this is the foundation. And so if they're not on this foundation, Paul said there is no other foundation. So if they're not on this one, they're not on a foundation at all. They're building on sand. Well, hallelujah. Amen. I don't care how big. I don't care how many members. I don't care the following. I want to make sure I'm part of the church that's built on the right foundation. And here's what that right foundation is. He said the foundation is repentance from dead works. Faith toward God. The doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. And so the apostle identified these things as part of what the true church is built upon. we got to be built upon repentance. Isn't it interesting that nowhere in here did he say acceptance? Even though the majority of Christian churches today tell you to accept the Lord as your personal Savior. But the word acceptance is not in our foundation. In fact, one of these days, maybe before we get done with this series, I will teach again the fact that the Bible nowhere instructs us to accept Christ as our Savior. It's not about us accepting Christ. It's about whether or not Christ accepts us. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. It's about him accepting us, not us accepting him. But our foundation is made up of repentance. It's made up of faith. It's made up of baptisms. That is a baptism of water and a baptism of spirit. It is made up of the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead. Listen to me, listen to me. I, and I know you're standing, but listen to me, church. And I know most of you don't have to deal with this, and thank God for it. But I am going to tell you, even among some of our um, ministers who preach Acts 2.38, there are doctrines that are circulating, where they're teaching that the coming of the Lord was simply a symbolic term, and that he's not really coming back. How they're teaching that. I'm talking about people that baptize in Jesus' name. Are teaching that. They're teaching that all the things that you read in Revelation happened in 70 AD. 
But I'm going to tell you today that part of the true foundation is the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so that blows them out of the water. They're not on the right foundation. I don't care if they are baptizing in Jesus' name. I don't care if they are talking in tongues. They're not on the right foundation. We got to believe that the Lord is coming back. We got to believe that the dead in Christ are going to rise. And we which are alive and remain are going to be caught up together to meet him in the clouds. That's a part of our foundation. Judgment throne of Christ is a part of our foundation. And uh, they teach that symbolic. It's symbolic, but I'm telling you, it's real. And we're going to be there one day. Amen. Praise God. All right. All right. So we're going we're gonna to pick up today with the third in our series of lessons here. And uh, I've still got a lot of ground to cover uh, in all of this. In fact, even in our third lesson, I've still got 20 pages of notes. So we're not going to get through all that today. I'm not going to try, so don't get too uptight. But we'll go as far as time and the Lord will allow today as we continue on in our study of the doctrine of baptism. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's lift our hands and lift our voices and ask the Lord to help us today. Amen. We need God to talk to us today. Let's everybody talk to the Lord together. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus. Let's praise him, everybody, one more time. Come on, let's give God praise before we're seated. Let's give God praise. Let's give him praise. Hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. God bless you. You may be seated. I want to try because time has already slipped away. I want to try very quickly to just do uh, a very brief review of some things. And especially since uh, we were not able to get last week's session recorded, uh, it almost makes me want to go back and teach those things again. So we'll have them, but I'm not going to do that. But we have talked about over the last few weeks that whatever we believe has got to be based upon the word of God. It's not going to be our tradition that's going to judge us in the last day. Nor does God work off of majority opinions. God doesn't care what the majority of the church world teaches. What God cares about is what does his word say. But we have established through the scripture, John 17, tells us that God's word is truth. And Paul said, if necessary, let's let God be true and every man be a liar. What that means is, even if 100% of the churches that call themselves Christian teach something contrary to what the Bible says, the Bible is right and everybody else is wrong. 
Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. And so we need to know this. We need to understand this. We did spend some time talking about the importance of water baptism. It is, it is the first thing, I think, uh, that needs to be discussed because really, if baptism is not even necessary, then let's not waste our time talking about it. But we have shown you from the scripture that it is extremely important. Uh, in fact, in fact, we, uh, we started out by establishing some very important principles of Bible interpretation that we have already relied on and will rely on again, if not in today's lesson, in lessons to come. And those principles are, first of all, we should always let scripture interpret scripture. Don't just come up with your own meaning to a verse. You need to find another verse of scripture that will grant you the interpretation God wants it to have. Well, praise God. Secondly, we should always seek two or three witnesses in every doctrine that we build. We don't want to just pull one, pull one verse of scripture out of its context and try to build a doctrine on that one verse. Now, please understand me. Uh, it doesn't mean that one verse is wrong. No verse is wrong. But if the way you interpret a verse cannot be backed up with at least one other scripture, your interpretation of that verse is wrong. And you need to find an interpretation that can be backed up with at least two or three witnesses. The third important principle we talked about with regards to Bible interpretation is the law of first mention. That the first time something is brought up in the scripture, it carries great significance and generally provides much more detail than subsequent instances. And the importance of this is simply that when you read other instances after the first mention, they may not tell you everything the first mention did, but it doesn't change what the first mention said. All right? We talked about that. That's very, very important. And even gave you examples of that, went through all of that in our lesson. Amen. As I said, we started showing you based on these three principles, based upon the scripture, that baptism is indeed uh, not only important, it is essential for salvation. Jesus Christ said that unless you are born of water, you are not going to enter into the kingdom of God. That's not my opinion. That is the verdict of the Lord himself. And then we found where Jesus defined being born of water as water baptism. In Mark 16 and 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So you can't get to heaven without it. Hear me, I don't care how good they are. I don't care if they're performing miracles. Jesus said, you're not going to heaven if you're not baptized according to the scriptures. Again, I can't stress this firm enough because I'm seeing a lot even of our apostolic brethren starting to 
come to some conclusions that are contrary to the scripture and trying to be inclusive and, and let folks be saved that are not saved according to the Bible. Now look, I don't have the power to condemn anybody to hell, but neither do I have the power to let anybody into heaven. So all I can tell you is what Jesus said. And he said, if you're not born of water, if you're not baptized, you're not saved. End of discussion. He's the one that gets to make that decision, not me. Hallelujah. So I can't let somebody in that Jesus said can't go. Praise God. So that's, that's uh, the way it is. We talked about it. We talked about Jesus gave these commands. We went through the commands of the apostle Peter. Uh, in fact, that's where we need to begin today because the last thing that we read uh, was 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where the apostle Peter made a very clear statement that the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism saves us, Peter said. Now, do we believe every verse is inspired of God? Yes, then we can't throw that one out, can we? Baptism doth also now save us. But now the reason we want to start at this point today is because what Peter did in making that statement was to reach back into the Old Testament. And he pulled the story of Noah. And he showed how water separated Noah from the wicked world. And water actually saved Noah from the wickedness of this world. And Peter went back to that Old Testament type and began to preach a New Testament doctrine. And that's where we want to start today because I want to again remind you that everything the apostles preached had to be based in the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament to preach from. So if they preached a doctrine, they needed to be able to go to the Old Testament and show that doctrine in the Old Testament, which is exactly what Peter did in 1 Peter chapter 3. And that's what we're going to do today in at least the first part of this lesson. I don't know how far we'll get. This may be all the distance we make today. If so, that's fine with me. But I want to tell you that everything in the Old Testament is given for our uh, for our purposes let's read first corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11 now these things happen unto them for an example they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come now please notice what the apostle said he said everything that happened to the people of the old testament happened to them for examples right I've often said the miracles of the Old Testament are not recorded so we can shout about what God did. Hallelujah. God doesn't want us just shouting about the fact that he parted the Red Sea for the children of Israel. God doesn't want us shouting about the fact that he showed up in the fiery furnace for the three Hebrews. 
God doesn't want us just shouting simply about the fact that the walls of Jericho came down when the people began to shout. But God gave us those stories for examples. What does that mean? What it means is he wants us to know when we're standing at the Red Sea and the enemy's coming up behind us, the same God that parted the water for them is going to do it for us. He wants us to know that when we find ourselves in the fiery furnace, we can look around and somewhere in the midst of the flame, he's going to be there shielding us from the fire. He wants us to know that when we've got enemies, that we'll learn the principle of shouting because God has given us the city that he'll start bringing walls down. It's written for our sakes. Hallelujah. Everything that happened to them happened as an example. And Paul said, they are written for our admonition. The reason they're included in the scripture is so we can learn from them. And he specifically states that this this applies to those upon whom the ends of the world are come. And uh, we know this is the last days. We know this is the last days. Now I believe it's the last of the last days, but I know it's the last days. How do I know that? Because Peter said it was. Peter said, this is that which will, uh, which uh, was spoken by the prophet Joel and shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Peter said, this is that. Therefore, this is the last days. Beginning at Pentecost, that was the start of the last days. So we're in the last days. This is the, the, uh, uh, the people upon whom the ends of the world are come. Therefore, whatever is in that Old Testament is put there for us. It's mine. It's yours. Praise God. And so we're going to go back and we're going to look at some things in the Old Testament and find this glorious message of water baptism all throughout the Old Testament. In fact, how many of you remember at the close of the last lesson, I told you I was going to preach Acts 2.38 from Genesis chapter 1. Anybody remember me making you that promise? Some of you do? Well, I'm glad you do, because I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and I'm going to show you that from the very opening of Scripture, God was already telling us what the plan of salvation would be in these last days. Hallelujah. Let's go there. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1 and read for me verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. All right, void. Now, now watch this. Watch this. The earth, we're on verse 2 now. And the, All earth. Right. the earth was without form and void. Right? It existed. 
But it was lifeless. It was dead. There was a dead world at the beginning. But something happened. What happened that started the process that brought forth life? Read. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. Darkness was on the face of the deep, and the spirit, the of, the spirit Lord moved upon of the Lord of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here's what I'm telling you. We've got a dead world, but the only way new life sprang forth, there were two things that were involved here. The spirit moved upon the water. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, right there, we find Acts 2.38. We find death in that dead world. Amen. That's what our life is until we come to God. And then when we come, we lay everything on the altar and we die out to sin. Amen. We lose everything that life means to us. But I'm going to tell you, we're not going to find new life until there are two factors that are brought into it. Amen. There's got to be the moving of the spirit and there's got to be the water. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Amen. Amen. This is the pattern that from the very beginning God established. When he created this world, he set a precedent. And he established a pattern. A pattern that would consistently involve three things. There would be death, which normally, in many cases, involved the shedding of blood. Then there was water, and there was spirit. And I'm going to tell you, those three elements from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, we're going to see God applying those three elements over and over and over again. This is why I'm telling you, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, people say, well, I'll tell you where you could accept Christ your Savior. They, they go to the serpent upon the pole. Well, number one, they didn't accept the serpent. They just looked at it. They sure didn't accept it as their Savior. Well, praise God. So don't, don't, don't try to give me that. But I'm going to tell you, throughout the scripture, there is this consistent pattern of three elements. There's death, there is water, there is spirit or life. Praise God. It's in every case. Let, let's, this is Genesis chapter 1. We find this. Now let's move to the book of Exodus. And, and I'm not going to take time. I don't have time today to go to every scripture. Now one that's not on your list that I do want you to get from me. Uh, I want you to go over to Exodus chapter 30. And we're going to read that in just a moment. I want to show you something here. But, but when the children of Israel, uh, when they... Uh, then they are in Egypt. They are there in bondage. And God wants to set them free from their bondage. God sends a number of plagues upon the Egyptians. The last plague that God sent involved utter darkness and death. God said tonight, everybody that wants to be saved is going to have to kill a lamb. And they're going to have to take the blood of that lamb 
and apply it to the doorpost of their house. And God said, if the lamb doesn't die, then the firstborn son is going to die. But every house will experience death. There will be death before there is freedom. Right? Are you with me? There will be death before there is freedom. Either the lamb's going to die or the firstborn's going to die. But somebody's dying tonight. Then God said, all right, they've offered their lamb and they start out on their journey and God could have taken them any number of directions as he's leading them out of Egypt. But guess where he takes them? Somebody said it. He took them to the Red Sea. He took them to the water. Because they're not getting out of bondage unless they go through the water. Well, hallelujah. And so then they get into the Red Sea and they get to the other side. And here come those Egyptians, the ones that have kept them bound, the things that have held them in slavery. They get into that water and what happens? The water covers them and forever removes them. In fact, the Lord said, those Egyptians that troubled you, you will see no more. After the water covers those Egyptians, they're not going to bother you anymore. And the water that provided an escape for the Israelites also provided release from the Egyptians. And then once they got through the Red Sea, they were free. Hallelujah. And there was a new life that could begin as they are no longer in slavery. So they get out here. They're in the Sinai Peninsula. And, and God has Moses up on the mount. And God says to Moses, I want you to build a, a tabernacle. It's a place where things are going to happen. We're going to establish a relationship based on that tabernacle. And in fact, I could really get way, way off track right here. And I don't want to do that. But I'm just going to throw this out free of charge, let you chew on it. But it's amazing how God told the Israelites, when you set up your camp, you put the tabernacle in the middle of the camp. And you let your lives revolve around that tabernacle. You don't try to make the tabernacle fit into your life. You make your life revolve around that tabernacle. Well, praise God. I'm to everything in their life revolved around that tabernacle. I don't care how accustomed they got to a place. If the tabernacle moved, they better move. And I don't care how tired they got of a place. If the tabernacle stayed put, they better stay put. Everything in their life, it revolved around that tabernacle. When God told Moses how to build it, he gave him specifics. God really is a God that is given to details. He always has been. God's never been sloppy. God's never been careless. 
God is a detail-oriented God. If you don't believe that, then you didn't make it through the reading of Leviticus. In fact, you didn't make it through the reading of God's instructions to Noah about building the ark. Because he gave Noah very, very explicit instructions. How long it would be, how tall it would be, how wide it would be, how many floors, how many windows, how many doors. I mean, he gave explicit what kind of wood to, to use, how to seal it up. God gave Noah very, very explicit instructions, just the way God works. It's not, well, I'll do my best and he'll accept me. No, you'll do things his way if you want to be accepted. Well, that should have got more amens than that, but anyhow... Uh, I'm done with that scripture now, Brother Josh. You can take that off the wall. Praise God. Um, Now, so God gives Moses these instructions, and he says to him, there's three very vital things that I want to be prominent about this tabernacle. Uh, there There is a gate to get in. And when you get in, when you walk through that outer gate, you have just come into the inner court. You're not really in the building itself or the tent itself, but you're in the courtyard of this tabernacle. The first thing that you're going to encounter when you come into this courtyard is not a place of acceptance. It's not a place of just believing. It's a place of death. And you're not going to go any further toward the presence of God until there is first a death. And this was the altar. God said the first thing that's got to happen, there's got to be a sacrifice. You got to put an animal on this altar and offer it for your sins. There's got to be death for sin. There's got to be death for sin. This is the way God set it up. In fact, God said the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But he did make provision. You could come in, you could pronounce your sin upon that animal and let that animal die for your sin. But sin will always bring death. That's why I'm telling you, church, and I I know I'm getting so sidetracked this morning, but I'm telling you, one of the most damnable, one of the worst doctrines that ever made its way into Christianity is once saved, always saved. Because people have taken that and they now say we can live any way we want to live. We can be fornicators. We, We can be adulterers. We can be perverts. We can smoke and drink and do anything we want and we're still going to be saved. And I'm telling you, that's not what the scripture teaches. The soul that sinneth is going to die. There's got to be a death somewhere. And I'm telling you, if you're still fornicating and you're still drinking or you're still doing drugs or whatever, there has not yet been a death. Right. Amen. You say, well, I can't help it. I'm addicted. Well, you know what? You let an addict die and he's not addicted anymore. Right? I 
don't care how bad of an alcoholic a man is, if he's laying in the casket, you can bring a whole keg up there and he's not going to drink. Because he's dead. And I'm telling you, if you're still tempted by it, you're not dead yet. So find an altar and die. Hallelujah. So the first thing you're going to find is this altar. But I want you to know, and here again is where so many make, make a big mistake. Because you don't just walk from that altar into the tabernacle where the presence of God is. You don't dare try that. God won't allow that. This is where I wanted you to go to Exodus chapter 30 and verse number 20. I want you to read for me Exodus 30 and verse 20. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation. They shall wash they shall, with water. Wait a minute. They shall what? Wash with water that they die not. Uh, when they come near to to the altar to minister to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. Here's what he said. He said, look, you've been to the altar. You've made your offering, but don't you dare get up from that altar and think you're just going to walk into my presence. No, no, no. you got something else you got to take care of first. You better stop by that laver. You better wash first. If you don't wash, God said you'll die. Don't tell me you're going to get into heaven without baptism. He said, unless you wash, you'll die. That's right. That's right. Amen. Hallelujah. There's got to not only be that place of death, there's got to be that place of washing. That's right. And so you go from the altar to the laver, and then you could get into that tabernacle where the Spirit of God was. Hallelujah. Praise God. Do you see the pattern here? Do you see how God did this throughout the scripture he did this so they had the tabernacle for 40 years they wandered they would erect that tabernacle whenever they stopped they put the tabernacle up that symbol was right there in front of them every time they stopped they didn't understand it but it was there for our sakes the bible said it was there now the day finally came 40 years passed all the old doubters are dead and gone. And uh, now it's time to enter into the promise. And God could have led them any number of directions to take them from the wilderness to the promise. But he took them to a specific spot. Anybody know where he took him? Nobody knows where they went. They went to the Jordan. Thank you. Praise God. I think, Lord, I've got more to teach than what I realized. Uh, they went to the Jordan River. Now, let me tell you something. Before they ever got there, God spoke to Joshua, who was now the leader. Moses was dead. And God spoke to Joshua and said, we got a problem here. You've wandered for 40 years. You hadn't kept the covenant of God. The covenant that God made with Abraham requires a token of that covenant. And the token was circumcision. And for 40 years you've wandered and everybody that's been born in those 40 years, not one of them's been circumcised. Not one of them is a part of the covenant. We're not going to take them into the promise until they accept and obey this covenant. So he said, before we go any farther, we're going to shed some blood. 
we're going to shed some blood. We're going to have some circumcising going on right now. And we're going to shed some blood. And then once the blood was shed, God said, all right, now it's time to get up and start across the Jordan River. I've been there. I've been to that spot. I, I think I relayed to you when, when we went to Israel, our tour guide would always tell us whether uh, he considered a site, an A, B, or C site, uh, as to its authenticity. He said, he said, I will always be honest with you about it. He said, if we get to a site and, and everybody's saying this is where such and such happened, then he said, I'll tell you if it's A, B, or C. He said, by that I mean C means, well, that's what everybody says. But we really don't have any proof. It's just what everybody says. He said, if it's a B site, then that means we've got some evidence to indicate that perhaps it is. But he said, most of that evidence is at least several hundred years removed from the actual incident. So we can't really know for sure, but there does seem to be some indication. Um, he said, but if I tell you something's an A site, he said, that means we've got all the evidence we need. We know this is where it happened. And so we got to the banks of the Jordan River, and we're standing there. And, and he made a statement that I had not heard him made, make on the entire tour. And he said, he said, this is the spot where the children of Israel crossed. Now, anything else he had shown us, he always said, you know, people believe. Or people say this happened. He didn't say that. He said, this is the spot where they crossed. And so I looked at him, and I said, A, B, or C. He said, A plus. I said, how do you know that? He said, well, for one thing, you just take the scripture and you see, he said, as you begin to compare, and he went through, the Bible says this and this, and he said, it's all right here. And he said, furthermore, look right up on that hill. That's Jericho right there. He said, this is where they came across. So I've been there. I know. I'm, I'm telling you, listen to me. God said to the Israelites, first of all, you're going to shed some blood. And secondly, you're going to go through the water. You're not getting into the promises without going through the water. But once the blood's been shed and you've been through the water, you can enter the land of promise and start a brand new life of your own. Well, praise God. I'm telling you, it's consistent, church. It's throughout the scripture. Everywhere you look, amen, it's the same three elements over and over and over again. Now, if we take those three elements and we compare them to what the Apostle Paul said is the gospel, then we start unlocking this whole thing the way that we should. Amen. Now, when I'm in Africa and I say, does anybody know what the gospel is? The answer is always the good news. Okay, fine. That's what gospel means. But what is the good news? Paul told us what it is. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I have preached unto you. All right, stop right there. Does everybody agree? Paul's about to define the gospel. He said, I declare unto you the gospel. 
He's about to tell them what it is. Everybody agrees. Half of you do. Does everybody agree? All right. So I got to make sure. So he's about to tell us what the gospel is. I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. Which also, which you also have received, you've received, and wherein, wherein you, stand, you stand, by which also, by you, which are also you are saved. You are saved by the gospel. That's right. This is, you want to know the plan of salvation? That's what Paul just said. This is the plan of salvation. This is the way to get saved. That's right. It's the gospel. Right. You got to go the gospel route. All right? If you keep in memory what I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, verse 3. For I delivered, I delivered unto you, of first of all, which that I which I also received. How, that, how Christ, that, here we go. Here's the gospel. How that Christ died. Christ died. Everyone say Christ died. Christ died. So the first thing that's a part of the gospel is the death. Right. Christ died for our sins. Now listen, years ago I mentioned to you I was on a radio talk show and I had a lady call in to that show and she said that when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that the work of salvation is finished. That when he died on the cross, that was all that was necessary. I'm here to tell you that's nonsense. It's not just the cross that saves us. Now thank God for the cross. I'll cherish the old rugged cross. It's a part of it. But it's not all of it. And the work of salvation was not finished at his death. Do you notice at the end of this, there's not a period. Paul's not finished declaring the gospel. Alright? How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures... And that he was and there's that word we talked about last week. And he was what? Buried. He was buried. Everyone say he was buried. buried. That's part of the gospel. It wasn't finished. The work of salvation was not complete. While he was still hanging on the cross, he had to be buried as this work of salvation goes forward. He was buried. And that's not all. Read. And, and there we are again. We've got that conjunction again. He died and he was buried and that he rose again. He rose again the third day according to the scripture. Listen, I'm thankful that he died. I'm thankful that he was buried. But I'm going to tell you if the story ended there, we'd have no hope whatsoever. We'd have no hope whatsoever if all he did was die and be buried. A lot of men have died and been buried for what they believed in. But that's not the end of the story with Jesus Christ. And it's not the end of the story for salvation. It's not just his death. It's not just his burial. But also he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Oh, hallelujah. Now, I'm telling you, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the gospel. And Paul said, that is how you're saved. You're saved by the gospel. I'm telling you, if we're going to be saved, there's got to be a death, there's got to be a burial, and there's got to be a resurrection. It's not enough to accept Christ.
Christ. It's not enough to believe that he did it. You gotta do it too. Hallelujah. I'm telling you, if you take these verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and you put them side by side with Acts 2.38, you find the key that unlocks all of our understanding. Jesus Christ died. Peter said when he was asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said the first thing you got to do is repent. repent. That's a death. Repentance is a death. It's dying out to sin. Amen. Repentance is the altar. Repentance is that world that was without form and void and covered in darkness. That's repentance. Repentance is, amen, that sacrificial lamb. Repentance is the shedding of blood at the Jordan. That's repentance. He said, repent. And then he said, what? And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That baptism, that's Christ's burial. In fact, the Bible says that we are buried with him in baptism. It is our burial. You can go to an altar and die to your sins, but that death has got to be followed by a burial. Right. Amen. Amen. The burial is the water upon which the spirit moved. Amen. The burial is the Red Sea. The burial is the Jordan River. The burial is the brazen laver. Amen. Throughout the scripture, it always required that water. Praise God. And he rose again. There was new life after the death and the burial. And that's what we see when the spirit moved upon the water. Amen. It was then that God said, let there be. And there was. It didn't happen until after the death and the burial. I'm telling you, they didn't escape the bondage of Egypt until there was a death and a burial. They didn't leave the wilderness until there was blood. Amen. And a burial. While they were there in the wilderness, they had their altar and their labor. But thank God, there was also a place where the Spirit of God was alive. And he was accepting their sacrifice. And he was speaking to their prophet. Oh, hallelujah. New life. Living world, land of promise, the presence of God. All of this pointed to the resurrection. Well, let's thank God for that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Look, throughout the scripture, throughout the scripture, you find this, you find this. I'm telling you, the the, the apostles, I, I would to God, I would to God that we would learn again how to pull from the Old Testament and preach these beautiful doctrines the way the apostles had to do it. 
You know what? If I wanted to preach baptism and I didn't have the New Testament to do it, I want to tell you somewhere I could take you. I could take you down to where Abraham looked at his servant and said, I got to find a bride for my son. So you go down there. I want you to go and find somebody, amen, that's going to be a good bride for my son. So when he went down to find a bride for Isaac, he found Rebekah, but she wasn't just anywhere. You know where she was? She was at the well. She had to, listen, this is what the servant said. He said, if this is the right woman, if this is really going to be the bride, then I want to put her to the test. I want to see if she can pass the water test. And if she can pass the water test, then she's the bride that you picked out for the son. Oh, hallelujah. I'm preaching to you today. If you want to be his bride, you're going to have to go to the water. If I wanted to preach to you about baptism and didn't have a New Testament, I'd take you down to Gideon's army. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. 30,000 men arrayed, ready. And God said, just find out who's scared. Send them back home. We don't, we, don't want them, we don't want them spreading all their fear and doubt to everybody. Just send them home. And 22,000 went home. God said, it's still too many. This is not the real army here. They may be wearing, they may be wearing uh, the, uh, the uniform. And they may have the weapons in their hand, but this is not the real army. God said, we're going to find out what the real army is. And here's how we're going to find out, Gideon. Take them down to the water. And when you get them to the water, we're going to watch what they do. And we're going to watch how they handle the water. And those that can pass the water test, we're enlisting in our army. And we're going to bring about victory by those who pass the water test. Hey, listen, don't sing to me, I'm in the Lord's army, if you hadn't passed the water test. If you're telling me you don't have to be baptized, you're not in his army. I don't care if you look the part and talk the part and act the part. You're not in his army until you pass the water test. Oh, hallelujah. If I didn't have a New Testament and I wanted to preach water baptism to you, I want to tell you what I'd do. Now, this will blow some minds. Maybe not from you, but anybody that would listen to this recording, this is... This is Oftentimes they'll use this as an attack against us, but there's no attack here. This is what the scripture says. So if I really wanted to preach baptism to you and didn't have a New Testament to do it, I want to tell you one of the places I would take them is to Genesis chapter 17. And I mentioned this a while ago uh, with the story of Joshua and the children of Israel at the Jordan River. But let's look at it for just a minute because it is significant to the subject. Because God established a covenant with Abraham, but God said there's got to be a token for this covenant. And the only people, I don't care Abraham, 
They can take a DNA test and prove they're your descendant. But they don't get the blessings. Are you hearing me? They can prove they're your descendant physically. But they're not going to get the blessings unless they have the token of the covenant. The covenant or contract required not just something on God's part. It required something on man's part. Genesis 17, 14 says this. And the uncircumcised man child whose flesh of the foreskin is not circumcised, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. God said, I don't care if he is a descendant of Abraham. If he is not circumcised, cut him off. He doesn't get the blessings. He doesn't get the inheritance. He's not part of this covenant. Now, the church world out there accuses us of being like the Judaizers in New Testament times that required that people go and be circumcised in order to be saved. Here's where they're getting it wrong. We don't preach the physical act of circumcision. But even Paul applied this to New Testament doctrine. Let me show you Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. In whom also ye are circumcised. In whom also you are circumcised. With the circumcision, with the circumcision that is made without hands. Read In putting off putting the body, off the of, body the of the sins of the flesh. Of the now, now look at this. I want everybody looking at this. I want you to see this. Here's what Paul said. He said there is another circumcision that puts you into Christ. It's not a circumcision made with hands. But I'll tell you what it does. It puts off the body of sins by the circumcision of Christ. Now what's at the end of that verse? Anybody know what that is? Colon. What does a colon mean? It means I'm about to explain to you what I just said. All right? So he leads us to this point. He said there is a circumcision that actually takes the sin off of you. What is that circumcision? Verse 12. Buried with him Buried with him in baptism. That's what the circumcision made without hands is. No, we don't preach you physically have to be circumcised. But I'll tell you what I do preach. You've got to have the circumcision of Christ. You've got to be buried with him in baptism. Without that circumcision, your sin is still on you. And you will not inherit the covenant promises that God has made to his people. You're not a part of this covenant until you accepted the token of the covenant and the token of this new testament covenant is buried with him in baptism that's right amen oh hallelujah hallelujah praise god oh let's thank the lord let's thank i don't have time to get into the next section amen we'll get into that later on hallelujah praise god Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's stand this morning. I'm telling you, saints of God. I'm telling you, saints of God. God is consistent. He's consistent. 
And the things that he tells us, he's always going to remain the same. In him, the Bible says, there is no variableness. Or we would say it this way, there's no variation. God doesn't vary at all. In fact, he said there's not even the shadow of turning. Do you understand that reference? Do you know what that means? They're talking about the old sundial. You know, the sun doesn't stay in one place. And we may not, we don't use sundials today, but I'm telling you, those who use them could tell when a minute passed because of the difference of where the shadow was. Any variation in the position of the sun hitting that sundial changed the shadow that fell. And James said, with God, there's no change. God's not moving. He's the same. There's not even the shadow. There's not even one minute's difference in God. What he was, he is. And what he is, he will always be. And so to come up with this doctrine that all you got to do is accept Christ or just believe on Christ and you'll save. I'm telling you, there's no, there's no Bible for that. There's no scriptural backing for that. You're sure not going to find that doctrine in the Old Testament anywhere. But I'll tell you what you do find. You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to be baptized in Jesus' name. And you've got to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's throughout the scripture. It's the only plan of salvation God has ever had and will ever have from now until the rapture. Well, praise God. Now, there are those that try to tell us, well, people just be saved based on what they know. And if they don't know the truth, God's going to judge them on what they know. If that's the case, then let's not tell anybody anything. And then everybody can go to heaven ignorantly. I don't believe that. Jesus didn't say, except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless he doesn't know this. I'm telling you, if you want to be saved, you're going to have to do exactly what the Apostle Peter said. We talked about it last week in that first mention when sinners first asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? The answer was clear. It was steadfast. I'm telling you, the question is still the same today. What shall we do? And if the question is the same, the answer is still the same. The only answer you can find, what shall we do? You've got to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off even as many as the Lord our God shall call oh come on let's thank the Lord let's thank the Lord I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Hallelujah. If you're here today and 
you've never experienced the fulfillment of that brazen altar by coming and kneeling and asking God to forgive you of your sins then we've got some altars here that you can visit this morning if you've never experienced the fulfillment of that brazen labor where they washed away the grime and the remains of that dead carcass we've got water here what doth hinder thee you need to be baptized in Jesus name and if you've never experienced the resurrection power that we call the glorious gift of the Holy Ghost which is evidenced by speaking in other tongues then you need to come and let God fill you up today I'm telling you you'll never be the same once God gives you this glorious gift he's calling you today would you help me pray right now church would you help me pray right now he's calling you today it's not about whether or not you've accepted him it's about you making yourself acceptable to him and you gotta do that through repentance and water baptism and when he finds you acceptable through that he'll fill you with his spirit and he'll give you the power to live the way you need to live these altars are open this morning let's everybody come let's find a place to pray if you need the Holy Ghost God wants to give it to you today God wants to give it to you today praise God